Amen. Well, if you take the Word of God and turn to John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter number 12. That's where we'll spend a great deal of our time. It's just a tremendous joy this morning to be with you, be able to bring the Word of God to you. It's a great joy to bring you this text. I know that we have been in the book of Philippians for months now, and I think it's a good time for a break to take a couple of weeks and focus in on what many people are celebrating of like mind all throughout the world, and that is the beginning of Passion Week, and particularly Palm Sunday, um, followed by next week Easter, which is Resurrection Day. And my prayer is, is that we would look at it this morning fresh and new. And as I read the text, I'm even pricked in my own heart how verse 16 says, The disciples did not understand these things at first. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written about him and that he had done these things to him. One of the dangers of a familiar text is that it is all too familiar. Um... But even the things that laid upon their minds, God was at another time able to enliven in such a way that would change their entire perspective um, in the most glorious manner. He would take those, those circumstances and the lives of these disciples who did not have a full understanding, and at a later time, um, God would use something in their lives, particularly the resurrection, to bring to life in a new way um, things that they did not fully understand. And how many times in my life the Lord has used truth that was already resting upon my soul and lie dormant upon my mind um, with a, with, and used something, whether it was a circumstance or a person um, or a message, to bring to life that reality. And I pray that that's what happens for us today. And next week, those days in which we often think are simply cliche, um, that the Word of God will just grip our hearts Show us Christ, exalt Him in our minds, and transform us in our mind thinking and in our wills. So if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. John chapter number 12, verse 12 is where we'll pick up our reading this morning. And we'll take it to the end, verse 19, but our, our focus this morning will be on the, those initial verses. John 12, verse 12, John writes these words by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it, was, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this, this sign. And the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. Let us pray. <clears throat> Again, Father, we come to you this morning as I pray that we've came to you 
not only as a body, Father, but individuals. And now we come to you, Father, as a body. As a corporate gathering of believers, Father, a number of people gathered outside the world into this little place. For one purpose and one purpose alone, I pray, and that is to worship the true King of heaven. He who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the one whom was exalted to that place because he so forever and in an incalculable way, inexhaustible way, humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. He would make himself like us so that he could die for us and as us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. For that, Father, we, we, we resoundingly praise you this morning. It's unthinkable, Father, um, how rare it is that that even happens on a human level, but that God would enter in, laying aside certain majesties and rights and royal privileges. The true King of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, that he would enter in, span the gap, Father, even greater than human to worm. He would come God to man, that we might know him, that we might love him, and that we might serve him. So, Father, help us to know him in a greater fashion now. Help us to love him, Father, more fervently as a result of our gathering together. And help us, Father, serve him more faithfully. Because we've seen him this morning high, exalted, and lifted up. Father, in the songs, in the prayers, in the reading of public reading of Scripture, Father, and in the preaching of the Word. As a brother prayed, Father, may the Word of God go deeply this morning. May it take root in our hearts, in our minds, in our affections, in our intellect, Father, such that it would provoke us on to more holiness, Father, separateness from this world, that we may fellowship with you. Father, that's what we long for this morning. Father, just how, how sobering John 15 is to me right now. Without sight of Christ, we can do nothing. So, Father, help us to labor in Christ in the moment. Father, help us to depend wholly upon him, rooted in the vine. May we not accomplish, Father, anything outside of ourselves this morning. May we not flex our spiritual strength, because truly we have none. The strongest that we have is weakness to God. But the weakness of God is strength to man. Father, help us this morning to humble ourselves in total weakness and utter dependency upon you as we come to the text, and that, Father, we may find strength in Christ. That is our prayer, Father. So go with us now to your word and do what only God can do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. Bless you. As I said, brothers and sisters, every year the church at large celebrates today, which is what we would call the beginning of probably the greatest, arguably the greatest week in all of human history. It begins today with what many refer to as Palm Sunday, and ends next week with what many would refer to as Easter, or maybe more faithfully, Resurrection Day. And the very reason that we even gather this day. In some sense, Easter is just the commemoration, the celebration of that great day that would set forth um, the best day out of seven, Sunday, for the rest of the church for the last 
2,000 years. But as I mentioned before, these days run the risk of being somewhat cliché. Poor representations of the reality to the point that as uh, if you can believe it, you almost dread those days. You dread those days because of the ignorance and the abuse of such glorious realities. And that's truly sad. Because these truly are monuments, accounts, historical realities that God has given to each of us, individually, corporately, as a church, to remind us of His faithfulness. These are days to remember. These are days to celebrate. They connect us to the past. They allow us to remember and in some manner relive those days and even to relive those days in a new way, a deeper way, Um, a way in which we are rooted in Christ and He strengthens us um, because we've remembered those days. Remembered really realities, not just historical narratives, but but spiritual realities of what Christ accomplished um, on those days. With that in mind, um, I would ask you very simply, as I asked myself this week, what do we think of when we think of Palm Sunday? What do you make of the text that we just read It is an extremely important text, seemingly so important that all of the gospel writers of apostolic authority and the inspiration of the Spirit of God would include it in their accounts for His worship and for our good. If 2 Timothy 3.16 is correct, and I believe that it is, then this text has something to contribute to us for our doctrine, for our reproof, for our correction, and for our instruction in righteousness that we might be the men and women of God that He desires, and that it might thoroughly furnish us for every good work. That This text has something to contribute today to make you more like Christ, to make me more like Christ. In some sense, without this text, we would not be and could not be the man or the woman that God desires for us to be. God gave 66 books. Every ounce of scripture was given for a purpose. A purpose is for his glory and for our good. To skirt aside one text as if it is a peculiar text and a necessary text um, is to actually um, not only discount what God has accomplished, but also to leave ourselves wanting and lacking. Um, because it was preserved for our good. Imagine all the things that God could have recorded. You know, all the volumes. Uh, I think it was mentioned this morning that really within the New Testament revelation, it's a relatively small account considering, as well as the Old Testament, relatively small account um, as to, as to um, in comparison with how much history has been, has been lived out. You know, the last six, eight, ten thousand years. And while we have a wealth of knowledge that is inexhaustible because of the very character and nature of God, we actually have a very relatively little amount that is recorded for us, even especially concerning Jesus' life, His burial, um, his, his death, His resurrection, His ministry, and His life post-resurrection. We have very little. Before Gospels, yes, but almost know nothing of His upbringing, know very little about His birth, and know um, really little about His three and a half years of ministry that are condensed in just pages, but God saw fit for some reason um, to record what He did. Why? For His glory and for our good. And thus every text should be um, approached with reverence and soberness, 
but at the same time received with the utmost joy and celebrated um, because he preserved it for us, for us. Um, so I would ask you again, when you come to Palm Sunday text like this, you don't have to call it Palm Sunday if you don't want to. That's somewhat of a man-made type of title, but it helps us, reminds us of that day that our Lord triumphantly enters into Jerusalem and begins what we would call um, the Passion Week. Not the movie, the Passion Week, not the Passion Movie, but the Passion comes from an old Latin phrase, uh, an old Latin word that would, that would indicate the sufferings of Christ. Um, his torture there upon the cross, undergoing the very wrath of God. Not, not just the wrath of man, but more than that, the separation from God the Father with God the Son, something that he would enter into that he had never entered into in eternity or in his incarnate state. He would come under the shadow um, of darkness, um, taking upon the sin of mankind throughout all the ages in every generation and in every geological space. This would be the beginning um, of that. And in some way, this actually provokes the Pharisees to kill him all the more. Right, verse number 19 that we just read, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What they're saying is, is that, that he is showing himself forth. They're honoring him with praise, whether blindly, ignorantly, or with full um, knowledge. We're Pharisees are saying we're losing them. They're abandoning Judaism and they're going after Christ and they're going to seek to kill him all the more. They've already determined to do that in the previous passage, but now Christ is coming out of the gate, swinging as it were, um, and declaring with his actions here um, that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ. What do you think of it? It's a peculiar text. Many people don't know what to think of it. <laughs> um, this is somewhat of a peculiar and an odd text. And we gather together palm branches, donkeys, secret plans, crowds, different ones, Greeks, Pharisees, and those that have come to the, the feast, his disciples, their response, their understanding, their clear lack thereof. You'd almost question why even do it. None of them seems to understand it. Um, even the disciples, I mean... Um, what do we even understand? What's, how would they even understand what's going on here? Clearly, Christ indicates that they do not. So, is Palm Sunday even a day to celebrate, or is it a day to mourn? You know, that's a question among Christians and commentators throughout history. Maybe you as well. You read Christians on this today, and throughout the generations, you get mixed messages. There are many different interpretations, and thus implications regarding the text. There are some who are actually very adamant, for example, and that this should not be viewed as celebratory text at all. After all, some of those, many of those, maybe most of those that are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us, and exalting his name in this text will no more than a week later be crying out with the same lips and lungs, crucify him. It is almost, it is in some sense a very tragic text. And that's true. Yet at the same time, in many places, possibly even in our community um, today, many will be celebrating this. Be celebrating in the most colorful and creative ways. You know, kids pulling out the old palm branches, renting a donkey to ride down the sanctuary. And you think that, that, that that's, that's silly and that's funny, but that's true. Letting the kids play the character, striving to capture something of this scene. Many people make many different 
um, um, interpretations of this. What do you make of it? Is this some mockery or complete misunderstanding of who Christ was? Or was this, in fact, a celebration by those who were anticipating the coming of Messiah? I'll go ahead and lay my cards on the table. I'm not 100% sure. You may be asking, well, why do you ask me then? Because um, I want you to think on it as well. But I honestly lean towards maybe not a neither or, but a both and reality. That the parties that are present in a similar way are probably um, like we are today. A mixed group of men and women. Both of sincere worshipers of God seeking to worship Him in spirit and in truth, but in some ignorance and in lack thereof of understanding, failing to grasp the fullness of what's happening, but truly worshiping the perfect Christ in an imperfect way. And then there are probably those there that aren't worshiping Him at all. That with their imperfect knowledge, they don't want to know. That what they are crying for is not the true Christ, but a Christ that will come. A warrior king who will come in not on a donkey, but in a, on a warrior steed ready to destroy all the pagans as they so desire in a very nationalistic type of way. They would probably have both crowds here. Those who would take upon their lips and ears and minds this, even this morning the glorious realities as they listen, sing, and recite in their minds during the gathering of God's people the true reality of Christ. Yet, yet Christ has not gripped their heart with true change. And it's evident by even our blasphemous lifestyle throughout the week that, that, that there's probably within this crowd men of, who lack understanding and are trusting in the true reality of Christ in an imperfect way. And yet at the same time, there are those who lack Christ all thereof and it's nothing more than a mechanical show. May I say that that's probably true of us this morning. But there are probably those here, and there are those here, True regenerate members in union with Christ with a lack of understanding. Yet day after day and week after week we come and we fall at the knees of Christ before the text and the very Spirit of God. Why? Because we need Him. Because we do not understand we don't understand Him in His fullness. We, don't, we can't grasp the realities. We don't know what's going on in the world. We don't understand the triune nature of God. We don't understand the, the um, hypostatic union, how God could be in Christ, both God and man, 100% God, 100% man, truly man, truly God. I don't understand how God could forsake Jesus Christ and how, how God could be separated from the God-man in many ways. But yet we come to Him anyway. We run to Him because of our, our, our total insufficiency and our, our need for the King. And yet at the same time, there is possibly people here who gather out of just a mere mechanical exercise because we're pressured by our peers to do a certain thing. We lack the total um, reality and we're here maybe even trying to gain some stature with this God. We have a God in our mind and we worship Him. And we look and long for Him to do what we desire for Him to do instead of coming in and bowing before the true King and conforming ourselves to His will. And that's the text that we come to this morning. My prayer for you is my same prayer for me. That I pray that we would consider the events of Palm Sunday this morning fresh and new as recorded in the Gospel of John as well as in correlation with all the other Gospels. What is before us now? 
is the most astonishing display of the Father. Sovereignly leading the Messiah towards that faithful night just a few days from now. 2,000 years ago. Which is one of his own that are probably here this day. One of his own would betray him and he'd be led to death upon a cross. Taking the curse of mankind and the very wrath of God on behalf of sinners just like us. And at the same time I pray that you'll see the love that the Father has for the Son and all those that are in the Son, how by in this moment putting Him on display for the whole world to see. And this morning, my prayer is that, that we would put Him on display for the whole world to see. The triumphal entry, one of those very reasons, they'll blaspheme His name and murder Him because, because they want something else. They want a God of their own making. But I want to put that one on display this morning. The Christ that would come, He would step out of His throne. He would humble Himself in such a fashion that He would express love um, towards those that are unworthy out of every, every historical a moment in history and every generation even now. My prayer is, is that we will exalt the Son, Jesus Christ, as the Father exalts Him in this moment by putting Him on display for the whole world to see. And, and, and subsequently, he puts, he puts it ingrained, in, sealed in the text, in all four Gospels. Why? So that He would put the, the, the Christ on display for you. Why preserve this text if not for that? Why teach us something? Why it seal it? The very eternal word of God in a historical narrative. If not to show forth as was shown forth that day. The promised Messiah is here. The fulfillment of that great promise. In Genesis chapter 3.15. That we've already rehearsed this morning in the Sunday school hour. The one who would come. And reverse and, and, and redeem all that was fallen in this world because of our father Adam. The one that would come and crush the head of the serpent. Thousands of years later in total anticipation. It is growing to a, a, a culmination. It's that the volcano is about to burst. The mountaintops about to come off. All that human history has been waiting for. And for the last 30 years has, has 33 to 30 to 33 years has laid dormant in society in a small little town outside of Jerusalem now comes forth flinging the gates wide open saying the king is here. He has arrived. There is no disputing this. That they may have disputed it that day. They may not have known nor understood in its fullness what was happening until Christ was glorified. But there is no discrepancy today. That they had reason in ignorance to wonder what was happening and even to get it wrong. But on this day, 2,000 years removed, according to the scriptures that have been preserved for us, the very word of God sealed in time and reality for 2,000 years of Christ the church. He's wanted you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that, that Christ has come. Your king is here. Now bow down in worship of him. Follow Him. That's my prayer for you and for myself this morning. I'll give it to you in just two simple points.
Number one, the setting. And then number two, we'll look at the significance. Number one, the setting. Boys and girls, simply, what are the circumstances? We're going to read the text. We're going to try to get an idea of exactly what's happening here in the historical narrative. And then we'll look at the significance. What's the significance of a donkey? Does it even matter? What's the significance of Hosanna? What does it mean? And does it even matter? What's the significance of the scriptures that are being quoted? Um, These things. What are the significance of the palm branches? Does it even matter? Is it incidental? Um, Or is it God piecing together the puzzle of human history, the prophecies of old, and bringing together Himself, this reality, and the fulfillment of this anticipation, and showing forth and exalting His Son to these people, but also to us this morning, saying, this is He, the King of Israel, the King of all the earth and all the world. And I've already shown my card, so there it is. Uh, Number one, the setting. John chapter 12 and verse number 12, we read, The next day a great multitude that had heard, that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. John 12, 12 um, introduces us in some way to this text to give you a little bit of background. Again, the setting, the circumstances. Christ is now on his way to Jerusalem. This This will be the last time in some measure. At least in this portion of his life. He's been working his way towards this for, for months and really years up to this point. But there is a sense in which now as, as possibly a 30 to 33 um, year old man, he's coming to his conclusion. His life, his ministry is about to be over in some sense. And not over in the sense of, of completely over, but in the sense of he's reaching his goal, his telos, the end. He even says in John chapter 12 and verse number 23, to the disciples following this account, the hour has come. that The Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. If human history were somewhat of a symphony, Christ's life would be that great crescendo after, after a glorious melody or even maybe a, a melody of doom for the last 2,000 years. The Old Testament, Israel, it seems like they continue to decline, that the state of the world just continues to get worse and Christ comes in and we see these little shadows of this growing crescendo. This would be um, that, that culmination of the crescendo, the loudest point here in Pan. Week. He's about to um, put his face towards Jerusalem like a flint in the most mighty of ways. It's the last week of Christ's life. At this point, as I said, Christ left Galilee weeks ago. Um, now he must walk from Galilee, uh, Galilee all the way uh, from up in the north all the way down to the city called Jerusalem in Judea. All throughout this time, he's been ministering the truth of the kingdom of God. He's been demonstrating his power through miracles all along the way. He's been testifying of his deity. I mean, he's not alone. Of course, his disciples are now with him, and they've been with him for some time. And the crowds along with them continue to be growing. Christ has had crowds of all sorts throughout his ministry. And depending upon his ministry at different times, they've continued to swell and decline. Um, he's not a very good prosperity gospel preacher. Um, he's not, he's not, a, he's not a, 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 
a needs seeker. He's not a, a seeker friendly type of minister. There were often times when he would preach one message and lose them all. Why? Because Jesus Christ preached hard things. He preached, a diff, uh, in some sense, a, a, what many saw as a complicated gospel, but it was only complicated because of the sin in their lives. Uh, they would not feed and partake of Christ. They would not drink from that well. Why? Because they gripped their sin. They couldn't understand and they looked often for reasons to justify um, themselves in their own unbelief. They would not um, follow. But now, at this point in his ministry, the crowds are in Tense. And it may very well be um, because of the miracles that he's been doing, the kingdom that he's been preaching, and the messages that have gone forth, um, but, but, but probably particularly because of the miracles that he's been doing. He's not hiding himself anymore. There were times at which he did. Even after he would perform miracles, he would tell the disciples or those that were healed, don't tell others. Um, it was why? Because it was not yet his hour. But if he came forth out of the gates like that, he would have been put to death no doubt quicker. But in the providence of God, he's patiently walking along according to the will of the Father, and now's the time. So he's revealing himself in, in mighty ways. He's revealing himself in uh, just previous to this in the Gospels. Christ travels through Jericho and heals two blind men. Not only that, but Luke records the glorious salvation of a wee little man by the name of Zacchaeus. A greedy little tax collector that Christ gloriously saved. Possibly even more immediately and more important than that is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Why was it, why was it because the text says that, that so that they would believe. Immediately prior to this, we're coming from Bethany, um, out of Lazarus's town, his house, uh, many have, have heard of the resurrection from the dead, the Pharisees included, and they have concocted a plan to not only kill Christ, but also Lazarus as well. Why? To um, hide the reality of the truth. And that's, it's culminating now. It's coming to a, a climax now. John twelve twelve says that when they had heard Christ was coming to Jerusalem, a great multitude had come or come to Him or come with Him. Not 100% sure, but it's probably a little bit of both. He brought some and some were already there. Why? For the sake of the feast. It was that Passover week, that great memorial um, that was set thousand, more than a thousand years prior as God, through a mediator by the name of Moses, would bring out the people of God out of bondage, out of Egypt. It would be commemorated. There would be a memorial set yearly um, known as Passover. And every single year, men, women, and children, families would, would pilgrimage um, or when they could, they would make a pilgrimage all the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast and the feast and festivals that would surround that. Um, it could have been an amazing crowd. I mean, just out, uh, incalculable in many ways during that time. Um, Josephus records that during the 67 to 70 AD, one of the Passovers, he records and estimates 2.7 million people um, gathered in Jerusalem prior to the destruction of the temple um, in 70 A.D. Um, some go the low ball as an estimate of as much as 200,000. Either way, it's an, it's an enormous amount of people that Christ would have been ministering um, to. And this will in part at least explain some of the multitudes, but there's a great multitude that are, that are following Him. If you will turn with me to Mark chapter number 11. 
When you take all of the accounts, Mark chapter 11, Matthew 21, um, Luke's account, um, John's account, you really get the full picture of everything that's happening. John is actually pretty brief. Um, He doesn't give us all the details of everything that's going on. Um, Actually, in verse number 14, he simply says, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. If you were to go to Mark's account, Mark chapter 11 and verse number 1, you actually read, read a much more detailed account of what happened. Chapter 11, verse 1, we read this. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered, it will, you will find a colt tied on which no one has set. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it. So they went their way and found the colt tied to the door outside on the street and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing? Loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches. John's going to tell us palm branches. He's the gospel writer that tells us that. From the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And then he's going to enter into the temple and cleanse it. What we find here, as well as in the other gospel narratives, is that as Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem, he's moving that way, there is a plan that has been organized by Christ himself. Now, there's no real way to know exactly how this came about. Um, It could be that there is just unique knowledge that God has, that Christ has, um, that the Spirit gave him of this donkey, and the Spirit's going to speak to that man, some will argue, in a natural way, and that Christ actually came ahead of time and and organized that whole thing, talking to the men. Either way, um, that's not the point. We know that the point is, is that we know that it happened, and that we know that God organized it, and that these men submitted to it. But chances are that these men that had the donkey, I would argue, are believers. Again, that's my own opinion. You can take it or you can leave it. Um, verse number 3, it says, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. Um, you could argue that the Lord there is just a general term. And speaking of a master, but it seems to me that if you're going to a stranger and you're saying, my Lord has need of it, it doesn't carry much weight or authority with it. But if you're going to another believer and you're saying that we... Worship the same God and our Lord has need of it. A donkey that has never been ridden. A young one um, who is being preserved for a particular purpose. After he talks to them, there's just such a willingness and almost just a, a joyful willingness to give it over to the Lord. It seems that that term Lord there is speaking of the Lord Himself, Jesus Christ, that these men worship the same God and they're working together in the plan that God has organized to, to exalt Christ in this moment. It's followed then by Jesus mounting that donkey after garments are placed um, upon it. Palm branches are broken, leafy branches placed down and Jesus Christ is going to ride in um, gloriously, 
Maybe not seemingly gloriously on a donkey, um, but gloriously nonetheless. In a very basic form, that's the, that's the setting. What's the significance? What's the significance of it all? Um, number one, I want to tell you that the significance, at least part of the significance, um, is that, all, that the Scripture would be fulfilled. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 21, in verse number 4, you would read of um, Matthew's account. In Matthew's account, you would read almost the same sentence that we read already in verse number 3. Uh, Matthew 21, 3. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And verse 4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl, or the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went. So why does it happen this way? What's the deal with the donkey? What's the deal with the palm branches? What's the deal with the Hosanna? What's up with all of these things? The significance of those things is that in part, at least, it was prophesied of old. That God had organized this day in a particular way that it would be carried out according to the plan of God. And as we look into this day and we compare Scripture with Scripture, we have every right to be encouraged and strengthened in the faith. Why? Because God Himself carries out His promises, His purposes, His prophetic word according to the T. Dotting every I and crossing every T according to His sovereign pleasure. You say, well, this was organized by the Pharisees. This was organized by the disciples. They didn't even know what was going on. You know, This is God working after the fact and saying, this is what they should have saw. This is what they should have believed. I was organizing all those things. The disciples didn't even understand it. The Pharisees had no idea what was going on other than this was a charismatic preacher preaching a message of a kingdom in opposition to what we believed and therefore they wanted to kill him. The significance of these events is that God in His sovereign pleasure is carrying out what He desires. And He's not doing it simply in an in an arbitrary manner. The prophecies of old, those all throughout the New Testament, God doesn't just arbitrarily draw a line and say, when I cross over this, know that I'm God, although that is a byproduct of that very reality, but He does it for a purpose, and that purpose is to bring in the Christ, to bring about redemption for all the world. That The fact that this was a fulfillment of Scripture is not arbitrary, but this Scripture is 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 pointed, geared towards, and built upon the reality that, that this is the fulfillment of the Christ to come. That this is the Messiah. It is to fulfill prophecy. But what prophecy? The prophecy of bringing in the salvation of all of God's people throughout all the ages, both Jew and Gentile. That's the idea. What's the significance to fulfill prophecy? What prophecy? And there seems to be a meshing together of two prophetic passages out of the Old Testament in this, in, in Matthew's particular um, reference. Isaiah 62 verse 11 and Zechariah 9.9. 9. Isaiah 62 verse 11 and Zechariah 9.9. 9. In Isaiah 62 and verse number 11 we read, Indeed the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him, 
And his work is before him. Isaiah, in that text, points out to the people, the reader, to you, to me, the fact that Christ is the salvation of the Lord. He is that covenant that he is giving for a people to a people. He is the embodiment of redemption. He is not only king, as we will make, um, make, make known in this text, that Christ is making known in this text, but he is both king and sacrifice. And then Christ points to the disciples in some sense and says, that's me. You don't understand it, but that's me. Peter at one point will just, will just stand toe to toe and face to face, nose to nose, and tell him, no, Lord, you will not die. And Jesus will look back and he will say, that's me. You don't let you lack understanding now, but know that is me. And I, you know, this morning too, it's just that we gathered in Sunday school and and Nathan brought forth and the reality of Christ in the Old Testament and how it's being manifested. Those things that we should know um, as, he, as he's being revealed throughout the Old Testament. Um, it, 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 we must remember um, that Christ is not only king, but he is to sacrifice. And that he is the one who would come, yes, in his royal regalia in some sense, in his majesty and his glory with all authority and in heaven and on earth. And that's one of the reasons it doesn't make sense to these people, nor the disciples even. Why? Because they had an idea of what that king should look like. They had an idea of what he should ride in on. They had an idea of his chariots that he should have. They had an idea of his army that should come behind him. They had an idea of where his sword should lie upon the necks of the pagans and the Gentiles throughout all the earth. They had an idea, which is one reason, when he doesn't measure up to that standard, that, that it will go from Hosanna to crucify him in just a matter of days. Why? Because they realize that he is not the God that they created in their own minds. That he is not the God um, that they had twisted scripture to, to secure in their own mind and thinking. And when he doesn't measure up to their standard, their view of what God should do, and what God should do when he comes in, how he should come, and what he should do, they crucify him. They crucify him. But the prophecy is clear all throughout the Old Testament with the help and the illumination of God that, that, that there would be one that would come, a Messiah, and he would come with all his kingly regalia and majesty and glory and authority in the heavens and the earth. But it would be secured solely, completely by the redemption that would be made for his subjects, particularly in the sacrifice that he would make on their behalf. And that's the point that he makes in John chapter 12 that we read just a moment ago. He says, my hour has come and it's time for me to be glorified. But know this, he says, most assuredly, I say to you in verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. You know, he, says, he says, unless death happens to the seed, nothing grows. You know, if, if it enters into the ground and it doesn't die, it doesn't split open. It doesn't first give of itself. There is no fruit in the future. If it does not open up and die in some sense, in their understanding, there is no harvest to be had. The, 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 the people will go hungry. Unless that happens, there is no kingdom, is what he's saying. That he's pointing to his death, his burial, and resurrection. Even in the lack of their understanding, he is saying to them, I must go. And this king, he is here, and it is real, and is true, and he carries true authority. But that authority is yet to be manifested until after I am dead, buried, and glorified in, in resurrection. 
That He will lead the world through the hearts of men. As the gospel goes forth and hearts are given, um, stony hearts are taken out and hearts are given, that they will be ruled and reigned over from the right hand of God the Father through the hearts of men. That He is a true King carrying true authority. Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Why? Because all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Daniel chapter 7, a kingdom of which there will be no end will be given. That kingdom is already established in some form. It's breaking in. In Matthew chapter 12, He he teaches that to the disciples. And says that if, if I'm casting out demons, then know now that the kingdom has come. And it's solidified in the death, burial, and resurrection. It comes in its fullness. In Acts chapter number 2, as the Spirit of God comes down upon the people of God, the Spirit manifests the reality that Jesus Christ now is ascended to right, the right hand of God the Father and He's ruling and reigning ever, forevermore until He brings all enemies. Psalm chapter 110, He brings all enemies under His feet. Know this is what he's saying, that the scripture is being fulfilled today. The king has come, but this king must die. If there is a harvest to be had out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, know that I will rule and I will rule well, but it will go, but but it will, but it will be, my kingdom will be established, my rule and authority um, through the death that I have to offer, the sacrifice that will be made. The second text is Zechariah 9 9. Rejoice greatly, he says. O daughter of Zion, shout out, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey. This is Zechariah 9.9. Lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. For this to come forth in their minds, any solid Jewish man, any solid Jewish woman, any solid Jewish child um, that had received instruction and catechism and taught the Word of God from a Jewish perspective um, would have known the proclamation that's being made here. They would have understood Zechariah's prophecy. They would have understood that Jesus didn't have to enter in to Jerusalem and say, hey guys, the King is here. That with His action, it would have spoken and proclaimed the truth louder than words. That what He is declaring is that the King is here. And many people recognized that. That the significance is the fulfillment of Scripture. But number two, the significance, and I've already mentioned this, is to present Him as King. The significance of this passage is that God the Father, Christ in His in His his providential workings, his life, supernatural workings of God, is presenting himself as king. This one who is foreshadowed all throughout the Gospels, but all throughout the Old Testament, um, is now here. Is now here. He's taking upon himself a royal title. Why? Because he is the great high king of heaven and earth. He is saying that I am the sovereign one enthroned. Above all creation. He's one who is above principalities and powers. Up to this point in the Gospels, he's hidden that reality for a time. He's hidden it. He doesn't necessarily want to reveal it to everyone. Why? Because his hour was not yet. Now the full revelation of God um, has come. What's the significance? He wants to present himself as king. What's the significance of a donkey? He wants to present himself as king. Not only is it a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 9, but when you read the Old Testament, what you find is that, that on more than one account, um, kings rode in on donkeys. 
You'll find in uh, Matthew 21 and verse number 1, there's a reference to the Mount of Olives. Um, this is almost a, a parallel to David in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse number 30. That it, it was the place of David's ascent, the Mount of Olives, where he then mounts a donkey and rides into the city in, in 2 Samuel 16 verse 1 and 2. What you'll find is that Solomon, in like fashion, uh, you'll find him at one point riding in on a donkey. That, that this wouldn't have been the selection of most warriors, Alexander the Great, other great men of war, but this was God's. Why? Because he was also trying to communicate the type of king that he was, one coming lowly with gentleness and bringing not a sword, but in some sense, peace to the world, how through the sacrifice and death of his own light of life. Um, what was the significance of the donkey? This was the way... It was throughout the Old Testament, the foreshadowing of the king, the greater than David, the, the greater than Solomon, the more exalted than any other king, and all the, one, the ones that they would typify. The king has come. How will he come? He will come in riding upon a lowly donkey. He will come not as a warrior tyrant of the world, but he will come as a humble, gentle, peaceful man. Why? Because he comes to cultivate peace in the hearts of those um, are his subjects? How by forgiving their sins and impart and imparting to imparting imparting to them um, salvation fully. What's the significance of the donkey? Um, to reveal the king. What's the significance of the garments? To reveal the king. You'll remember that garments were laid down as well. Second um, Kings chapter nine and verse thirteen. It's a foreshadowing too. It's a recognition of authority. It is a foreshadowing even of Christ. 2 Kings 9.13 Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps. And they blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king. Jehu is king. What the people are doing in throwing down the palm branches, what they're doing in, in laying down their garments, what they're doing in crying out Hosanna um, is... Exactly what happens when a king comes to take his position of authority. This is what they've done throughout the Old Testament in different forms and different fa uh, fashions. That it is a great act of submission. It's a great act of worship. It's a great act of love. It's a great act of recognition. Recognizing the disparity between the two. Between the king and the subject. He's not, they're saying he's not like us. He's greater. He must increase and I must decrease. We see in this act an act of humility. That's the significance of the palm. The palm, all throughout scriptures, the palm branch, the leafy branch. The palm branch mentioned here in John. Leafy branch in, in, in Mark. Um, speaks throughout the scriptures of many things. But, but one particular is worship. You actually find the palm all throughout the Old Testament. You'll find it approximately 35 times. It may be a little more, maybe less. The first time the palm comes up is in Exodus chapter 15, verse 27. It's the story of Israel camping. And as they find 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. The 12 and the 70 seem to symbolize, in some sense, Israel. The 12 tribes and the 70 elders. And the palm seem to symbolize ruling and authority in that passage. That's seen in the triumphal entry and the calling of Christ the King. The palm comes up again with Balaam. The palm comes up in the temple. It is imagery 
that is to be utilized in worship, possibly reminding them of the Garden of Eden when perfect worship happened, or, or where the presence of God was. That the temple now is the presence of God for uh, the nation of Israel. And that worship is to take place. The palms would have indicated in some sense worship. It would have been something that they utilized in the Old Testament to recognize authority and worship. And they would wave it in that act. It would probably be more. Not less, but more as well. The palms had become um, a cultural sign of the nation of Israel as well. In the intertestamental period in First or Second Maccabees, um, you'll find that a war was won and palms were, were utilized in the, the victory. And, and one writer says, in short, waving of palm branches was no longer restricted to um, the tabernacles. It was used as well in the, tabernacle, or the, the Feast of the Tabernacles of Booths. Um, it was a way to wave, to worship, to, to, to um, indicate authority. He says, in this instance, it may well have signaled a nationalistic hope that a messianic liberator was arriving to the scene. And that it would have indicated that they were looking for a king and that this was that king. Now, they may not have understood the fullness of that king. And they may have had a false idea about what that king was. But there is no doubt that here they are recognizing with the palms, with the garments, with the um, signal of waving them, laying them down, that the king has come. And it's further signified by a shout. What do they shout? Hosanna, John 12 tells us. Hosanna, John 12, 13. They took the palm branches and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm chapter 118, verse 25 through 27. This is a direct quote. Again, uh, to fulfill all scripture. Psalm chapter 118, verse number 25. You read these words. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. That this is a direct quote. You say, well, I didn't see Hosanna in there anywhere. Because in the Old Testament, the Psalm 118 here, the New King James translation, it is translated, the meaning of it, not the word. In the New Testament, in places like John that we just read, and in, in the other Gospels, it's transliterated. The underlying word is literally Hosanna, so it's transliterated. But the meaning is save us. And save us now. Psalm 118, verse 25, Save now, I pray, O Lord. That's your Hosanna. That there are these people, David, a psalm of David, these people um, who have within their souls, within their minds, within their corporate gatherings, in an individual, um, the, the, this, this, this knowledge, this desire, this conviction that they need the salvation of God. Whether they understood the fullness of that, again, is, is debatable. But, but they cry out. David cries out in Psalm chapter 118, God, save us. Save us now. That's what the crowds were saying. This would have been, too, what is known as a song of ascents. Um, they would have sang it every year for close to a thousand years as they ascended to the mount um, to the Passover. Their children would have sung it multiple times a year as they were on that pilgrimage back home. That they had learned throughout the generations and every year, every, every boy, every girl, every Jewish person would have understood 
that they needed the Lord. They would have cried Hosanna. That cry of Hosanna was a cry for salvation. It was a desperate plea to the Lord for prosperity. For Him to keep His promises. For the light to come. For them to be fed. For the harvest to be fulfilled. For the water, the well to be poured out that they may drink. One writer writes, the cry Hosanna, originally a transliteration of the Hebrew, um, give salvation now, had come to be a term of acclamation and praise. Every Jew knew its occurrence in Psalm 118, part of the Hallel, the Ascent Psalms, sung each morning by the temple choir during the Feast of Tabernacles, but also associated with the Feast of Dedication and with the Passover. Indeed, at the Tabernacles, at least, every man would have waved um, his, uh, his palm when the choir reached the Hosanna. In Psalm 118, verse 25, the connection was so strong that many Jews referred to their palm branches as, as, as hosannas. Save us now. That that's what that would have indicated. That there was a cry for salvation as they looked to and saw the king. And they prayed a blessing. That's what the, uh, John chapter 12 signifies. That phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That they're actually praying a blessing upon that Messiah. That would have been the indication. God bless him. Bless the Messiah. They would have prayed for a conferred blessing upon them. As they made the pilgrimage to bring him. Why? Because there was a need for that in the nation of Israel. They're crying out, save us. Send us prosperity was their cry. And this was not a new cry. This was a plea of the ages. Along with David and the nation of Israel. That God would send down water. That He would send rain upon the crops. That He would um, open the eyes of the blind. And it would have been a week long endeavor. They would have spent eight days crying out Hosanna. Seven days, one cry apiece. And on the seventh day, seven days culminating in seven cries. The climax was called the great Hosanna. The great God, save me, Lord. The great Hosanna. And it may not mean much to you. And it may not mean much at all. But is it surprising that they begin to cry here on Palm Sunday? And that there's multiple cries out eight days later. And it culminates there on resurrection day Easter morning our Lord would rise on that eighth day eight days of Hosannas God save us please and it culminates in a great Hosanna as Christ resurrects from the dead that this is an act of worship this is an act of honor this is an act of recognition this is an act and a plea this is not only a recognition of God as Christ as King and Messiah. This is to a recognition of our miserable state and our dependency upon God that if God doesn't save, no one will. This is in, the significance lies in the recognition of King. But in recognition of King, we recognize something about ourselves. That we are nothing but mere subjects under His authority. That we cannot save ourselves. That we are not God. That all of the strength in the, in the chariots and the men and the nation of Israel as they gathered together in that great throng with all of their intellect, skill, and ability, they could not concoct a plan to save themselves. And they knew that. And it was, it was emblematic 
in their worship every single year in anticipation of the Christ that would come. And you can imagine year after year and day after day as a Jewish faithful man and a Jewish faithful woman rose up and lied down and taught their children to look to Christ, to sing those Hallels, to go to the Psalms in anticipation. They were wondering, thinking, begging God that He would come now. And the thousand year wait is over. The king has come. And he's come in fashion as the scriptures presented. God has organized it the way that he said, so look up church, look up Israel. He's here and he's here to save. And in the recognition of Christ as king, there is a recognition of, 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 a subject, of me as a subject that is to come under that authority. And that scares many of us, doesn't it? We in America, in a nation that gives credence and value to liberty, and rightfully so, will on many days say, no king for us. We are a democracy. You know, I say what goes. We're going to do what I want to do, or I won't do it at all. We have been, we are so removed geographically as well as historically from anything like a monarch. And we've raised up a generation of people that have no idea what it is to be ruled well nor ruled at all. Thus, men will not be ruled. They are the God of their own thinking, they are the God of their own mind, and they will not bow the knee to anyone. Why? Because they, because, because, because for the sake of whatever, liberty, justice for all. Maybe that's because they've not met a good king. I heard somebody recently say that the best government um, is a government with a, is a monarch with a good king. I think that's right, at least scripturally. Jesus Christ, the king of all the ages, the creator of all heaven and earth, um, is the greatest kingdom that you'll ever see in this life or in the next. What we have in Christ is not a tyrant, but a good king. A king who is willing to serve his people such that he will enter into, step off of his throne, come out of his palace and become one of the peasants and live a life and sinlessly live a life of obedience and faithfulness. Why? So that in his death he can take upon himself um, the, the, the penalty of justice against all of his creation and that, that they may too have a relationship with him. And those rebels who stand outside the gates are now made subjects of the Most High God. And they serve and honor Him with the utmost joy. Why? Because they have the utmost confidence in His character, in His nature, and in His work. He has proved it and it's been displayed not only in who He is, but in what He's done. That's Christ that is pictured before you this morning. I present to you that King. Not a tyrannical ruler as with the pagans, but the one who would enter into service and wash the feet of his subjects and lead them well and lead them right. It is incumbent upon every one of us this morning to come under the lordship of that king. To come under his rule and under his reign and serve him with all of our life and breath and, and, and affections and will and hand. What we have before us is just as a rich and a complex scene. 
It's a cry of worship. It's a cry of deliverance. It's a cry of dependence. It's a cry of exaltation. It's a cry of, it's a cry of a picture of Christ's humiliation in his death. He's now upon the steps and descending to that death seven or five days later on that Friday night. He will succumb um, to the spirit. He will succumb to his spirit and yield to the very wrath of God. He will drink the cup of sin that we have filled. He will drink it and he will drink it all. Every sin that you've thought, everything that you've done, every act of rebellion, every wrong you've done towards your neighbor, it's being filled up in that moment. And this king comes and he says, I'll drink it all. This is him. God the Father is saying, this is the one who will drink it all. He's going to take it all for you. This is he. He's worthy to be followed. He's worthy to be served. He's worthy to be bowed down before this is a rich and complex cry of worship and recognition of the king. But one question again may weigh upon your mind as it, it did mine. They don't really understand what's going on. This isn't displaying anything to them. Maybe not. But it should to you. We now know what it means. As God has presented it to them and in the lack of their understanding and in their ignorance, I, I st I'm still convinced that there were some there that day that worshipped Him with the knowledge that they had and God honored it. Even in their lack of understanding. Why? Because that's the Christian life altogether, friend. Church, brothers and sisters, little ones. You'll never have a perfect knowledge of God in such a way to worship Him in a way that is worthy until we get um, on the other side of this life in heaven when we are perfectly made in His image. We see Him face to face and we will be like Him. That's when we'll finally worship Him in a way that He deserves. You know, the, other, the, only, the only instance of palm branches in the New Testament is John's account here and one other. In Revelation chapter number 7, which gives us the same Gospel writer, um, we see the second use of, of palms in the New Testament. And you read this. After these things I looked, Revelation 7 9, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, no doubt purchased by Him, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before God, before the throne of worship. God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That the true expression of the palms here that will, that will display itself upon the people of God out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, out of every generation throughout the ages in its full manifestation and its true character will be as we wave those palms at the Blessed One who gave His life a ransom for us. That that's what this meant. That that's the true picture. That that's the idea that's being portrayed. And if they may not have understood it in its fullness, and to be honest with you, I don't understand it in its fullness. But what we have today, more than they had, is clarity. That's what it means. The king has been presented. And there is a call for the subjects to bow down and worship. And if we could take the palms, take off our coats, and honor and recognize the one 
for whom died on our behalf. If nothing else, we have the clarity of the apostolic writers and the illumination of the Spirit of God today. And even if there was not one true worshiper there that day, with God's manifold grace upon us this morning, this room should be filled with the true worship of the true of the one true God because of the picture that He has presented to us this day. This event is, was, and always will be a clear declaration that Jesus Christ, your King, has come. Do you love that? He actually didn't say the king has come. He says, your king has come. The king of Israel. It's personal. There is a call to Israel that day. Your king. He's yours. Say, he's not my king. Oh, he is. You're just a rebel. With a heart and a love for for, for self-autonomy. And to take up your own authority. And you wield it against God. But one day, friend. One day, church. His patience will run out. You know, one of the things I love, if I can just take home a a lesser um, uh, observation that just blessed my heart this week, I can just take home one less observation, is just going, is reading this passage and just thinking on the patience of God, the long-suffering of God, the mercy of God. You know, like us, we're reading that, we're like, you're you're rebels and you're heretics, you should be put to death, you know? (laughs) I mean, just, just you, you see people there and you're just like, why don't you get it? You just end up frustrated with them. And you think justice should fall, but not God. Not Christ. He's in their lack of understanding, in their ignorance, and even in their total rebellion, He is patient with them. He gives them time. Love the old, the old King James term, maybe even the new King James, long-suffering. He is long-suffering. You know what that means? He suffers long with us. This is what He's doing. Jesus, meek and mild in some sense, yes, but ruler of all the ages who has every right and authority to pour out justice upon those who would reject Him and even, and even, uh, uh, even conspire against Him in that moment. He knows their hearts. He knows what's in them. At any moment, He could call down 10,000 legions of angels and end it all, but He doesn't. He doesn't. He suffers long. And is that not true with us? Is it not true of us that God is patient with us? Every single day, spend an entire life of just total rebellion, self-autonomy, casting off God. And when He could, at any moment, He'd be right and just in casting us off and pouring out His just, He doesn't. He suffers even longer. He's patient. And it's that patience, Romans says, that long-suffering, um, that, 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 way, that, that, that brings us to God. That brings us to repentance. It's Romans chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, just the, the long-suffering, the patience of God, bringing men to repentance. You know? But do not mistake the patience, grace, and mercy of God for apathy and indifference over your sin. Right? Don't think that because he's patient today, he does not care. Don't think today because he's long-suffering with you, the king of all the ages, that it doesn't matter what you do. Romans 2 also is very clear that today, if you're outside of Christ, you are storing up wrath for yourself. The great question of the ages will be whether that wrath will find its end upon Christ. Or God's long-suffering 
will run out. His patience will end. And that wrath will be poured out upon you. Do not mistake God's patience, long, we can't say it enough, long-suffering mercy and grace for apathy and indifference over your rebellion. He presents to you himself today as king. And I implore you, on the basis of his good character, his gracious nature, that there has never been or will be a better king to serve and honor in this world. And thus he calls you, he calls me, to come under that authority, to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and spend our lives following him, um, not only in life, but also possibly in death. What's the setting? You saw the setting. What's the significance? The significance is that Jesus Christ presents himself as king. Every element points to that. And the significance for you and I today is to repent and believe, to call upon the name of the Lord, to come under his lordship, and to be made like him. And for the rest of our days, serving and honoring him with our palm branches in hand, face to dirt, hand to the plow, Eyes up, serving Jesus in whatever capacity he has called us. You say, it scares me. I don't know where he's going to call me. When you get there and they're like, hey, give me a donkey, (laughs) you know, it'll all work out. Um, You don't always know what God requires. But if you can trust the one who calls you and gives you and points you and commands you, then know this, you're in good hands in life or in death. That's the Christian life. It's not a Christian life of full knowledge. But it's in the lack of that full knowledge we have full confidence in the King who created us, but also in the Savior who died for us. Romans chapter 8 is clear. Um, if, he not only, if He gave us, not only, if he gave us his, his Son, how shall He freely not also give us all things? And I probably butchered that. But the concept is the greater to the lesser. If He's willing, if God the Father is willing to give you His Son, and He is, if you'll, if you'll receive Him, if you'll come to Him. When He calls, you go. And if He's willing to give you that, then what compares, friends? What compares, church? What compares, brothers and sisters? Like the, the things we ask for Him are small in comparison. To that. That's the idea. If God was willing to do that and give us the King, um, then everything else is in some sense petty compared to that. So trust your king. Serve him with all vigor and zealousness. If the Lord would will die for him and long for that day when you see him face to face and finally we'll be in the presence of angels and give him the worship and the glory that is due his name. But the thing that amazes me that even now in this sinful body, this rebellious carcass (laughs) in which the spirit of God lives, even in my lack of knowledge and my utter ignorance on most things, I can trust in Christ that he met with me today, manifested his power and presence through his word, and that, I, that today we even have some palm branches to give him that he will accept in Christ. So let us give him our honor and our praise. Let us not save it for that day, but let us give it this day, preparing for that day. So let us go to prayer. Let's, let's go in prayer now and praise him for that. Father, we praise you. With the utmost hosannas. We praise you. With all the acclamation. And honor that we can. 
Father, it blows my mind to think that I can wake up day in and day out and do anything of eternal glory. Father, it blows my mind, baffles me, to think knowing myself, knowing what I'm capable of, thinking the thoughts that I do. Father, this, the, the songwriter is right, you know, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Um, but at the same time, you often correct me, Lord. As a father disciplines his child, I know the hand of discipline often. And for that, I praise you. Because you correct my thinking. Christ is sufficient, not only in eternity, but also now. Such that what we can bring you this morning truly matters. Father, the sacrifices of our lips, the sacrifices of our hands, the sacrifices of our feet, Father, are made pure and holy in Christ. So, Father, help us to do all things in Christ. Father, take the sermon. Help us to receive it in Christ. Take the word. Take the songs. Father, take our lives. Let them be consecrated ever, Lord, to thee. Father, we praise you for the salvation in your Son. We praise you for the King that now rules. Not only, Father, do we praise you for the save, the pardon, the full free pardon of sin, but we are thankful, Father, that you have given us a King to rule and follow who will rule us well. So help us, Father, to have the utmost confidence in him. Father, help us to come under the authority of his word. Help us to see the severity, but also the joy, the sobriety. With, 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 help us to rejoice and tremble in the very character and nature of God as we go to the word. Father, help us to see, illuminate our minds and thinking. I'm concerning Christ. Father, if there's somebody here today that doesn't fully understand. I pray, Father, that you would illuminate their hearts and minds and thinking and show them the glorious nature of the Son. Show them the majesty of Christ. Show them the goodness of His character. Show them the mercy of God. Show them His righteousness and His holiness, Father. And if not today, as with the disciples, Father, would you... Lie it upon their consciences in such a way that you'll use it in coming days to bring to life, Father, um, what you have not brought to life today. Father, I pray that these realities, they would never forget and that it would proclaim and preach a message to them, Father, not only this day, but on all the days to come. And in your patience and long-suffering, that you would suffer with them, Father, so long as to bring them to yourself. Father, remove any barrier and that, that halts them in worshiping the one true king. Remove any obstacle, every obstacle, Father, um, that prevents them from seeing the goodness and the graciousness of God. Father, give them the heart to believe. Put before them, Father, the means necessary to bring them to yourself. Father, show them Christ in all of his glory. Exalt him in their hearts and minds and thinking and bring them to yourself. Father, do the same for us today. Even as believers, we need more of Christ. So exalt him now. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing, conclude the service with a song. <clears throat> the song will be number 116. I don't believe it's one that we've ever done. It's not one that I've ever read. I like from time to time just to go through the songs in our hymn book and read them. I came across this one this week. And there's a section in our hymn book 
that at the top right it says, Jesus the Son, Christ our King. And you'll notice that uh, almost all the songs today dealt with the kingship, the lordship of Christ. And this 